Bibles, we'll go to Mark chapter 10. We're moving right along, moving right along. We're going to finish this book someday. Maybe this year, maybe not, but we're going to try. I promise you, um, this morning we're at one of those places. That's, that's me, I know, I know. That's me. We're at one of those places where um, we're kind of forced to deal with some things that Jesus said. And we could skip it, and I'm going to be honest, I considered it. I considered skipping this section uh, just because it's so difficult to deal with at times. And, um, and yet Jesus thought it was appropriate to have an answer uh, for everything. And so everything is a teaching lesson. And it's not always just about right and wrong, but also about how to love, how to have grace. Uh, and, um, and why should this be any different when we approach the scriptures? And I'm, I'm going to be... Um, uh, a little transparent when I looked at this and, and was like, I don't want to teach this. So I began to look down farther in it and I kept coming back to the guilty uh, feeling of like, but I, I kind of supposed to, right? Like I, I'm going through Mark. This is something that Jesus kind of set aside, like it or not, it made the scriptures and and it makes some things very clear and very plain. And, and so uh, uh, at first, uh, you know, I, I, I know how I've kind of always viewed this, but but as I begin to look at the scriptures, I think some things unfolded to me, and I, and I hope to share some of that with you this morning, and hopefully we'll see it uh, in the, hopefully I'll do the scriptures justice this morning. So let's just, just, just dive in, and before you start to assume anything or feel uncomfortable, I just want you to wait, take a deep breath, take in the whole passage, because I really believe there's more here than meets the, than meets the eye. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Are we there? Amen. Then Jesus left Capernaum and he went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan. Once again, crowds gathered around him and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with uh, a question. Well, what did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them female or male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Now listen, I I wonder if it's just our nature to focus in on verses 5 through 12 where Jesus just specifically talks about divorce as this disease of a hard heart. He brings clarity as to what the original intent of marriage was supposed to be. He's pretty, pretty thorough, actually, uh, and, and as, to, as to how deep the rabbit hole goes if you're looking just for what's right and what's wrong. There isn't much discussion here as to what the intention of it was or what the standard of is. I mean, for years and years, the pulpit has actually been riddled with men who've been pretty point blank on the issue. And there are definitely some areas where we can be point blank. There's no doubt Jesus uh, uh, has brought some clarity to what marriage is and to what is defined as marriage and what is okay and not okay. 
Uh, but just for that clarity and just for the same sake of grace, I'm going to break this thing apart and then we're going to put it back together uh, uh, in, in the best way we can. So let's first, let's just get this out of the way, but we're going to come back to it. Yes, God is adamant that he doesn't like divorce. It's not, nor was it ever, part of his original plan. There's no mistaking the scriptures here. Not liking divorce and not liking you, however, are two different things. Let me say it again. Not liking divorce and not liking you are two different things. And again, we're going to talk about that in a minute. So don't, don't tune out just yet. Let's hear the full word of God in this, okay? So secondly, Jesus, through Scripture, defines what biblical ordained marriage is supposed to be. And by the way, Jesus is God, so that makes him like the author of marriage. Uh, he makes it clear that a marriage is between a male and a female human being here. And that's a big deal today. As culture wants to dictate something different, they want to try to change the definition of what that is. But listen, nothing's new under the sun. Homosexuality existed back in the days of Jesus, or, let, or, or lest we forget the words of Paul, right, to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says this, Don't you realize that those who do wrong uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery, talking right about this again, or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheap people none of these will inherit the kingdom of God some of you were once like that that's what it says even here the general consensus is that anyone who does wrong is not going to enter heaven and Paul's description of the wrong of wrong follows it's pretty simple right sexual sin premarital sex and it shouldn't be happening that's sexual sin idolatry worshiping things other than God that could be money that could be your house that could be your wife that could be your husband that could be your children when you put all those things before God that becomes idolatry and he says adultery Jesus just said what adultery was being with anybody other than your spouse is adultery period prostitution he goes on we know what that is right practice homosexuality thieves greedy or alcoholics or abusive people or people that cheat that's the list and i'm pretty sure we all fit in there somewhere so before we get all like all high and mighty over some any or any specific sin we all do a heart check right not better than anybody like paul kills any idea that like somehow if if, you've, uh, if you're like somehow good, you've been married for a long time, like you're somehow better. No, you're not better. Jesus moved that step back farther, when he? When he says, man, you've already committed adultery when you just looked at another person and was already imagining those things happening. Your heart was in, fully in right there. Homosexuality also, it's not worse than being a thief. It's the same. Same. It isn't worse than being an alcoholic. It's the same. Sin is Sin. As people who are lost in sin, we've got to quit acting like we're somehow better because our sin is somehow a lighter offense to God. Believe me, it happens in the church. Church gossip's like crazy. Can't, they, they just do. Do you know so-and-so, man, they've been together forever, they're getting a divorce. Or did you know so-and-so, they're sleeping with so-and-so and all this stuff is going on right now? I can't believe all this stuff is happening. Can you believe they got caught stealing? Da, da, da. I mean, it's just all happening, right? No, no, no one sin is better than the other. It's all the same. There's no lighter offense to God. It's all an offense to God. 
I am on equal ground with all who are swallowed up in sin. Even Pastor Jim is on equal ground with the most worst and vile sinner. Equal ground. God doesn't like any of it, and yet he loves us. He doesn't love us because somewhere deep inside us is some good. Because there isn't. The Bible's very clear about that. He loves us because he simply chooses to do so. And it's this kind of love that makes us, we don't understand God. Because love for us is often a give and take. We rarely love someone who doesn't love us. So it's hard for us to understand something that could love us for the sheer sake of just choosing to do so. We don't know that love. It's hard for us to understand God this way. God loves creation, yet his creation is lost into this life that he is adamantly opposed to. It's a bizarre scenario here. Like we constantly do things that God doesn't like, and yet God loves us. It's a conundrum for God. How do I deal with this people who always does stuff I don't like? <laughs> what do I do here? Now, again, Jesus makes a biblical stand here, and he defines what marriage looks like. Whoever divorces her wife and marries someone else commits adultery, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. By the way, this wasn't on the bucket list of things for Jesus to talk about. Jesus didn't go out his way and just say, hey, disciples, I want you to sit down. I'm going to talk to you about marriage. That's not what happened here. What happened is they cornered him. And made him answer a question. And, and as to what was right and to what was wrong. And notice it was the Pharisees who pressed him with this firm stance. By the way, it was also after that, it was the disciples who pressed him into this stance also. Jesus didn't offer up this. It, it, it ain't like Jesus said, hey guys, I want to teach you about marriage. No. I said, what do the scriptures say? What does God think about marriage? What does the scripture say about marriage? And so he, he, he answers them. And why were they so curious? Because in a thousand years, not much has really changed. That's why they were all curious. We live in this constant state of war with sin in our flesh, so divorce isn't new. Come on, man. It's been going on since the days of Moses. And by the way, God's answer to those who have been uh, divorced is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus shows up, and this is what he has to say about marriage. And maybe most preachers stop here, which I think they do. But the scriptures reveal really here something that's kind of uplifting uh, and hopeful. uh, And even the very presence of Jesus further presses upon this singular idea as well. And can I be honest? Like when I first set out to look at this, I didn't see it. I didn't see it right away. I was like, man, I I don't want to talk about this. It's so hard to talk about. I don't want to talk about it. And then as I begin to look back at what Jesus was saying and what he said to the Pharisees, I saw something I didn't see before. You know, this is where I praise God for age. And, and with age comes experiences, and with experience comes maturity. And there's some things that I have just learned over the years in my walk with Jesus that he's been very patient about that allow me, I think, to see what I'm going to share with you today. And it's the idea of concession. Concession. Read the scripture. There's the word, biggest day. Jesus uses the word concession to describe how God dealt with divorce in the days of Moses. Concession means this, a thing that is granted, especially in response to demands, a compromise or allowance or 
an exception. Now, if God doesn't like divorce, if God views those who are in divorce as people who are committing adultery, then why would he ever grant a concession towards the ability to live outside of anything other than biblical marriage? It's easy. I didn't see this when I was younger. It's easy. It's called grace, and it's called the love of God. This is where Rich Mullins, when he said the reckless, raging fury that is called the love of God, because the love of God is reckless. God, like, throws his own rules to the wind because he's so in love with us. And it doesn't change whether it's right or wrong. Oh, it's wrong. But his love for us makes concession. His grace allows us concession. God loves you. God loves you so much that his love literally overpowers his wrath and anger at times. And this allows mercy and grace to flow. While this doesn't stop the biblical context of what marriage is supposed to be, it does offer up a side of God that not enough people actually see. In the Old Testament, God is seen as this like frightening individual as he wanted to be, right? I mean, he shows up in Egypt, and he just like is a whirlwind of fire. He opens the seas. They walk across. I mean, God's stories are crazy in the Old Testament. He's frightening. However, even for Moses, God allows grace to step in concerning his people when they struggle to love one another. And Jesus didn't shy away from the truth of divorce. But hear me. It's for divorced people he came. This is truth. He is the grace of God personified. Jesus is the grace of God personified. Through Jesus, those who've experienced divorce have forgiveness and access to the transformed, redeemed life. God's Old Testament concession is grace. And in the, two, in the New Testament, that same grace took human form. Jesus is our concession. I've, we've all sinned like we can't look at a divorced person any more than we can our own sinful state and we go to God and we're all equal as sinners before God wretched human beings before the Lord he doesn't approve of anything we do but his love for us has given us concession in the New Testament we call that Jesus God doesn't approve of divorce God doesn't like divorce it's not his plan it's not it was never his intention however he also knew that we would struggle with it he sees our struggle with it he sees our struggle with just loving each other but his love for us pushed him to grace and to mercy and by the way that should be so comforting man <laughs> it should be so comforting the church has been fickle I think in how we deal with this and the church has no room um, to talk either. Divorce exists within the walls of the church. <laughs> Divorce exists within the walls of the church. And listen, guys, it always will. It always will. And the reason why, the reason why it exists within the walls of the church is because people, people are in the church and people will continue to struggle. People struggle doing what's right. They struggle in learning how to love. They barely love themselves. You know how hard it is to love someone else when you don't even love yourself? But the plan of God is simple. In all things, may the, 
that God, God laid out the plan. He laid out the law. This is what marriage is supposed to be. Romans 5.20. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more, or this is Romans 5.20, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. You know the King James Version, right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Is divorce right? Easy answer, no. And neither is a lot of things we do. Can't be pointing fingers. Why, why would I ever try to point a finger at divorce? Sure, I've managed to stay married to one person. But if you think I haven't fell into those other categories that Paul spoke of, you'd be wrong. I've been the thief. I've been the alcoholic. I wasn't always a pastor or even a Christian. I'm reminded of the words of Brennan Manning in his book, All His Grace, who despite being seen as a wonderful preacher, rarely claimed to be anything more than a begging sinner. Listen to his words. And, and I tell you, I read this last night, just like, I'm so thankful for Brennan. So thankful for him. Because I like I would put him on a pedestal. And you know what he would do? He would burn that pedestal to the ground. Listen to what he says. Ragamuffins have a singular prayer. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Any additional flourishes to make that cry more palatable are Pharisaical leaven. Warning. Mine has been anything but a straight shot. More like a crooked path filled with thorns and crows and vodka. Prone to wonder? You bet. I've been a priest and then an ex-priest. I've been a husband and then an ex-husband. I've amazed crowds one night and then lied to friends the next. Drunk for years, sober for a season, then drunk again. I've been John the Beloved, Peter the Coward, and Thomas the Doubter, all before the waitress brought the check. I've shattered every one of the Ten Commandments six times on Tuesday. And if you believe that last sentence was for dramatic effect, it wasn't. <laughs> I would put this guy on a spiritual pedestal to add his humility, and he would burn it to the ground. Again, the book is called All is Grace because it's grace that should be seen here in Mark's gospel account. But sometimes our eyes focus just on the obvious. Our self-righteous flesh, like the Pharisees, want only the black and white truth, which you're welcome to have. And if that is all you see, then you miss the intention of God in that moment. Just like Paul said, I showed you the black and white, and you can't keep it. But, God, but Jesus, like, mentions, yeah, but God made a concession. God made an allowance. Why? Why would God do such a thing? You set up all these laws to show us how sinful we are because I want to show you my grace and mercy. And the only way you can understand how lavish my grace is or how lavish my mercy is is to really see how big a sinner you are. Because I promise you this, and I've always said this, and most of you have heard this before, the more you have an understanding of how sinful you are, the greater you will worship and follow after God. You will see your need for him. This is the truth of the Lord. <laughs> if all you want is black and white truth, which you're welcome to have, it's, if that's all you see, then you miss the intention of God. His intention is to love you, to have you one day be where he is. Remember, that's the whole point of Jesus. I go away so that I may build a place where we can all be together as family. Do you remember the story uh, of the woman caught in adultery? All right, John 8, 1 through 11, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. 
But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. I'm going to pause right there. We'll get on to it. Caught in the act of adultery. What was adultery? Adultery is when you're sleeping with anyone who's not your spouse. Divorced or just secretly affair, whatever you want to call that, adultery play they put her in front of the crowd teacher they said to jesus this woman was caught in the act of adultery the law of moses says to stone her but what do you say now they again were trying to trap him saying something they could say uh into saying something they could use against him but jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger they all kept demanding an answer so he stood up again and said all right but let the one who's never sinned throw the first stone and then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. And when his accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them continue? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said what? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. This has been the church way too much. Using the lives of others to prove their points. The Pharisees don't care if this woman commits adultery. They don't care if she's married or not. They don't really care about her. They just want to destroy Jesus. They don't care how they treat her. They really, they manhandle her. And church, this happens way too much with people who come looking for grace and only find a rigid, rule-driven, fear-based religion that never accurately portrays the grace and love of God. I can't tell you how many times I've seen the church manhandle people and beat them up over right and wrong as if you've forgotten that you're a sinner too. Jesus used strong words to describe the sanctity of marriage. He used, he cut it black and white. They asked for it, he gave it to them. And yet when he confronted by someone who's been literally caught in adultery, doing the things that he himself has said was sinful and not right, he doesn't, uh, uh, tongue lash her or reminder of all the wrong that she's done what's he do he loves her and he offers her grace he says i'm not here throwing stones either these men aren't an image of the world and and what the world does to adulterers or people who've gone through the divorce this unfortunately is an image of jesus rescuing someone from the clutches of the church a church that's way more interested in being right than loving. And here's often where we fail to represent God. Unfortunately, this isn't how the world will know that we're Christians. Well, they were right. That's not how they're going to know. Man, I wish that was the case. Being right isn't going to get us noticed, at least not in a good way. How many, how many of you like it when somebody just is like told you? Everybody else loves told you so's. Nobody loves a told you so. Nobody loves to be wrong, and everybody wants to be right. We love that part. Like, yeah, you should have listened to me. Everybody's been there, though, right? Yeah. Nobody likes a told you so, but you love being on the other side of that thing, right? We love being right. I think sometimes we love being right more than we love just loving someone. It's true. Being right is not going to get us uh, noticed. It's not going to help us evangelize. There's no escape from the truth of Jesus. In John 13, 25, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How we love 
is going to define us. How we give mercy is what's going to define us. How we forgive is what's going to define us. There shouldn't be a single stone thrower amongst us. I don't care how good at baseball you once were. I don't care how straight you can throw the rock. Shouldn't be one ever in your hand. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory. We all suffer alike from the disease of sin. It's the one common thread we all have. Therefore, we should all bear within us the compassion of understanding that life isn't easy and that we all make mistakes. The real question at the heart of the gospel shouldn't be is something right or wrong. The Bible makes those things clear. Even Jesus makes those things clear. The real question is, how could a God love us so much and overlook so much? If we all fall short, if we all sin, whether it's adultery, whether it's prostitution, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's thief, whether it's being an alcoholic and idolatrous, all these things. If we all fall so short, how could God love us at all? If all these things are wrong and all these things put us at enmity with God, how could he continue to love us? How does God continue to make concession with us at all? He doesn't have to. This is where we have this bizarre, like, but he chooses to. I don't understand that. I don't understand it. How? It's reckless. You trust people that lie to you? You don't do business with them. Yet Jesus had a thief amongst them, and he kept him the whole time all the way to the end. And everybody knew he was stealing. He loved him all the way to the end. Think about this. Jesus knew who he was. He said it at the table that he knew he was going to betray him. Jesus knew he was stealing. All the, all the, all the disciples said that they knew he was stealing. It's in, the, it's in the gospel. It's recorded. They never said anything because Jesus never said anything. He loved him all then. And when he knew he was going to betray him with the kiss on the cheek, what did Jesus do? He turned the cheek and let him kiss him. Because you know why? Jesus wanted the kiss. Jesus wants to believe. Jesus wants to love us. As wicked and as horrible, as as prideful and as sinful as we are. He's reckless with his love. That's reckless, God. Are you going to trust them? Look at what they do. You tell them what's black and white and they still go and do it. And you're going to love them? That's reckless, God. You're going to trust them? I love my favorite thing is like looking at the Facebook ones and like you can tell like as I get older, because I would have totally agreed from like 20 to or probably like teenage years to like 35. But as I get older and the more I draw closer to Jesus, I see such powerful, like life-changing truth in being reckless with love. And so every time I see like on Facebook or a social media meme that says like you need to get all these backstabbers, uh, gossipers out of your life, these friends that just don't do anything that do this, and it's just like, and you know what? If, like I said, teenage years to, 20, to 35, be like, you're dang right. Get those dudes out of my life. They ain't doing nothing bringing me down. And all I can think is today at 45, Jesus is going. Man, I love them. Jesus, do you see how they act? I know. Why do you love them? I don't know. I just love them. They're good. I love them. No, they're not good. They're not good. I see them through me. I see them through my eyes, through, through the eyes of, that I have the Father. They're my kids. 
I love them. I love them. Even when they do dumb stuff, I love them. Even when they're bad, I love them. Jesus, they're not going to go to heaven. I got a little patience and I got a lot of grace. Won't you let me figure that one out? Well, if I keep trusting them, I'm going to keep getting burned. You are too, Jesus. I know I've been burned a lot. It's okay. I, got a, I, I can handle it. I can handle it. I, that's reckless. That's reckless. I, I, I find myself, the older I get, I'm like more like enamored in awe of God's love. Like, how, I don't know how you keep doing it. At some point, like there's this physical side of me, right? Because that's all I know. I don't know the spiritual side but this physical side of me that like i'd be exhausted waiting on people to come to jesus i'd be exhausted lord waiting on them to really receive you and receive the transformation of what your love can do and yet jesus just keeps pushing and keeps pushing and keeps pushing god makes concession and it really just means jesus Jesus is the full grace of God that's poured out into this flesh and blood person. He's like the physical proof of the invisible God. Uh, uh, And and it's really more of God's just love. God's love is poured out into a human being, and he's called Jesus. He is the proof that God's love has made concession for us sinners. God has made a compromise. God has said, "I I know they can never do right. But I'm going, to, I'm going to compromise something to make sure that we can be right. He's chosen to save us. It's crazy. Despite our consistent poor behavior. Despite our consistent lack of love. Our weakness. In this, we, his children, find it like this kindred soul in each other. We are all sinners. We all have that in common. There's no need to judge you. I'm one of you. (laughs) And and if I judge you, I'll befall the same judgment since God forgives me in the measure that I forgive others. Oh, so what you're doing is wrong, and I've come here to tell you how wrong you are. Guess what? God's going to hold me to that standard. In the measure that I forgive, it'll be the measure forgiven unto me. That's Scripture. So be careful about how many fingers you point. Be careful about how much you talk about judgment. Be careful who you're telling they're living their life right or they're living their life wrong. You know what? You might be able to see it. Doesn't mean you need to open your mouth about it. We should all walk humble. We should all walk humble. And I'm going to tell you, this is a good news. This is not a hammer today. I brought the good news of Jesus. I brought the good news. Concession is a good news. When Jesus says that word, it turned that whole, that whole scripture around for me. Where I looked at something that was so black and white, and I dreaded going into that because, yeah, there's this black and white painting. But there's also this other painting that's, you know, and you know what it is, really? There, here's, here's like this painting of divorce and then like this idea of adultery being attacked onto it and all these things that looks just so dreadfully, right? But you know what stands behind it in, in concession is the cross of Jesus Christ and blood flows over the top. And those who are in a, adultery and those who are in divorce, if they've given their lives to Jesus, that blood is going to turn them white as snow. And then the very thing that had marred them or had scarred them will be no more for if Christ had taken it all in. That's the good news. That's the good news. The church is made for alcoholics. The church was made for the prostitute. The church was made for the idolatrous. The church was made and created for the divorced person. The church exists for these people, the sinful sinners. As Brandon would say, the ragamuffins. 
We should all walk humble and happy, rejoicing that God has forgiven all of us. We were all once sinners, now we're saved. And grab joy. And if this isn't the good news of the gospel, then what is? If concession isn't the good news of the gospel, then what is? And here's the thing, the neat thing about the Old Testament, New Testament thing. We see the spirit of what God wants to do in the New Testament exists in the Old Testament with that word. I mean, come on, back in the Old Testament, it's pretty rigid. And yet God made concession? I mean, when there was one person in Joshua's camp that didn't do like he was told, what did they do to that guy? They killed him and his whole family, and then God was pleased. But when it came to divorce, God made concession? We see glimpses of God's grace. We see glimpses of the spirit of Jesus existing in the Old Testament in words like concession. And today we have the Christ. We have Jesus. And if you know him, you've already invited him inside you. You live. He lives amongst this. There's no temple of God. There's no building where God inhabits. There's your body. That's where God inhabits. You know what fills this room? The spirit of God that dwells within me. I carry Jesus everywhere I go. He's not in the building before I get there. I carried him in. He's in there too because his children are also in there. He is everywhere because he's everywhere in here. Concession, man. Concession. Jesus is our concession. Lord, I've done it all wrong. Lord, I, 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 I've been the alcoholic and I've been not so alcoholic. I've been the guy who... Yeah, I don't drink anymore, but I long for it every day to take away the stress of my life rather than lean upon you. I lust for it in my life. God says, I'm your concession. I'm your concession. This month has been so extremely hard, so extremely difficult in my life. The move and like it just seems like if everything could go wrong, it could. You ever had those days? I was explaining to someone I was trying to get everything ready for Help for Heroes. Man, I got to get a last-minute stuff at Walmart, man, and it's just been a rough month. But I'm like, oh, man, I'm already here. It's Help for Heroes. I'm going to get this thing over with, and it's going to be awesome. And, and, and I'll finally be done with April, right? You just have one of those months sometimes, and I jump out of the truck, and I go get what I need. And then i getting ready to check out, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, where are my keys? I don't, I don't have my keys. Maybe I sat them down. Did I sit them down looking at something? I can't figure that out. And I call Joy and go, I don't know what to do with my keys. I, I don't know if they're in my truck. I don't, I don't know. She's like, calm down. I can't calm down. I kind of need to be at the pavilion right now. It's help for heroes. I got all this stuff in my truck. I think maybe I should go back in. I come back out and I go, yeah, I'm just going to walk to my truck, see if I left them in there. Maybe I, I, I'm hoping I didn't because I don't have a second set. But I get out there. Yeah, I locked them in my truck. You know how I know? Because the truck's running still. I didn't even turn the truck off. I just like park, jump out, lock, go. $50 later, 15 minutes later. Ouch. I promise you, I wasn't godly in that moment. I promise you. But I rest in Jesus. Golly, man. I feel like Brennan a lot. That's why I love to, to listen to Brennan. No matter what platform that I can be placed on, I will burn that thing to the ground with bad thoughts, with, with the lust for alcohol, with a lot of things. I will never let myself get too high. 
because I am constantly reminded, like the ragamuffin prayer, have mercy upon me, Lord, a begging sinner. I'm just a begging sinner. And it's that thought and that constant reminder that keeps me from pointing a finger and trying to think that I've somehow achieved a life that's better than someone else. It's not always about being right or wrong. How we love and how we treat people are more important. This is how people, the greatest evangelistic thing I'll ever do in my life is love people. Not be right or wrong. If I can help them, I will. Will I steer them in the way that's right? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, the greatest evangelistic proof of Jesus living inside me will be how I treat people every day. Am I going to lose it when I don't get my food when I should? I don't care how hangry I am. Or am I going to keep calm and realize somebody else is having a bad day and allow them to make those mistakes? And in the middle of when they're expecting to be, be angry uh, and they're expecting me to, to say something that maybe be rightly so, I offer love instead. I don't always do that, but I'm supposed to, and so are you. Let's worship the Lord. God's great, amen? Let's give him the praise he's due.